0: Good morning. morning. It's good to be together. It's good for us to be together. And as we are together, amen. Would it be all right if I start our time off with good news? Okay then. I'm going to read to you the first three words of our passage today. Don't turn your Bibles there. Don't stand up just yet. But just listen to these three words. Because these three words capture good news for us to hear. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said, the Lord said. Friends, the good news is simply this. God speaks to us. God speaks to us to us. This is good news. This is good news for anyone who might be here today who isn't so sure about this Christianity thing. Perhaps you're having a difficult time wrapping your minds around the claims of the Bible or the need of forgiveness at this cross where Jesus died. If that is you, God is speaking to you. It's good news for some of us who might be here today who've been away We've been away from worshiping on Sundays. We've been away from reading the scriptures or praying. We've been away from serving or house churches, doing things that we know we should not be doing. Good news. God is speaking to you. It's good news for people just like me. Perhaps you're like me or you already believe, you're already a part of the community, you worship week in and week out, you serve, you read scripture, you pray, but yet that sense of awe and wonder of God's voice speaking to us is drifting away and it's becoming formulaic. If that is you and you are like me, good news. God is still speaking. And the reason why he speaks to us Just like he spoke to Moses thousands of years ago and to those Israelites, in the same way off the pages of the scriptures, he speaks to us today is because he yearns to have a relationship with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to tell us who he is, who we are, and what he wants us to do with our lives So that's precisely why we here at Crossroads do all that we can to gather weekly, to listen to God speak through the scriptures, because we are a community of individuals who desperately want to hear him speak. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Well, with that being said, please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 23, verse 23, Uh, As you may already know, we are currently in a sermon series in which we are looking at several feasts, feasts that are ramping up like a crescendo towards Easter Sunday. And the particular feast that we're looking at in Leviticus 23 today is called the Feast of Trumpets. Yes, the Feast of Trumpets. I'm getting a few of these, Feast of what? (laughs) Looks from you all. You're reminding me of my four-year-old son, Colt. Uh, Every night, we tell him it's time to go to bed, and he looks at us, and he goes, bed? What's that? I don't know what bed is. I don't want to do that. Okay, that's willful disobedience. We just don't know. That's two different things. I get it. But the same look, nonetheless. So it's a feast that we know little about. There's not much about it in the Bible. There's three verses that we're going to look at today, and there's a little bit more in numbers, and that's pretty much it. So to understand how God is going to speak to the Israelites way back then, and how he's going to speak to all of us here today, we have to pretend to be minors Yes, miners with pickaxes. Isn't that cool? And we have to crack the surface of the text to get the meaning, to find the pay dirt, the motherlode of what God is trying to say to us through this feast of trumpets. So with that being said, would you please stand as you are able and listen as I read to you Leviticus 23, verse 23. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month, You are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. You may be seated. So, as we listen to God speak to us through that passage, we're trying to figure out, as a good miner, What's the center of gravity of what he's trying to tell us? Uh, Could it be that sacred assembly? Is that the key to unlocking the door? Is it that Sabbath rest or no work or that seventh month that's being mentioned here? Perhaps. But together, I think we can all say that the key to the paydirt's of understanding what God is saying to us about the Feast of Trumpets is with the word commemorated. Commemorated. The ancient Israelites come together and commemorate. There's a Hebrew word that describes this. It's called zikron. Yes, zikron is a memorial, a commemoration. But a very specific kind of memorial. Let me tell you what I mean. A zikron is the kind of memorial where there's a sign that triggers a memory in our heads of something that happened in the past, an event. So it's a sign that sparks a memory that reminds us of something that happened, that we experienced. So the Feast of Trumpets is a memorial in which the trumpets are played. Da, 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 da. And then, a memory throughout the whole Israelite community is immediately comes to mind. The best example that I can give to you in our time in history of this kind of memorial happened last September. Yes, last September, on September 11th, 2016, uh, there was a memorial to something called 9-11. And perhaps... Like me, you watched this memorial take place at what is called Ground Zero in New York City where two planes hit the Twin Towers. And in that memorial, there is a fella who had a bell and he rang the bell not once but twice, 8.46 a.m. and 9.03 a.m. That's the exact moment when those planes hit the Twin Towers. And if you watch this memorial like I did, you would have noticed immediately, immediately when that bell was rung each time, there was a collective remembrance. Everybody at Ground Zero last September immediately remembered when the bell was rung what happened on 9-11. I would like to extend that to all of us. When we heard the bell rung, we immediately remembered where we were when we first found out about those planes slamming into the Twin Towers and killing thousands of people. The bell is a sign that triggers a memory of something in the past, 9-11. That is exactly why the mantra is, we will never forget. Okay, okay, Let's turn back to our passage in which there's this zikram, this trumpet blast, ba 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 ba, that triggers a memory that every Israelite would have known. Sadly, they didn't write it down. It doesn't say, hey, here's the memory that you can't ever forget. So, this is why there's all this speculation among professional Bible nerds about what this memorial was for. A good friend of mine earlier this week said, well, hey, they must have just known exactly what it is. Well, I think we can answer this question together if we just think about the context of what's going on in Leviticus. Let's think about it for just a sec. The Israelites are in the Sinai Desert. They just built a tabernacle, this dwelling place of God. And then behind that, there's this tall mountain behind them called Mount Sinai, this special place where God has met Moses a couple of times. But just a few months ago, God met Moses on this mountain and handed him some tablets. There was thrilling fire and clouds. You couldn't have mistaken what was going on. This is a tremendous event. He has a cool shirt. Sorry, got sidetracked. <laughs> the event. What could it be? They are just two years removed from being saved by God as slaves from Egypt. They're in this desert. The mountain is right behind him. What were they trying to always remember when they hear the trumpet blast? What do you think it is? Please, shout it out. Law, keep that. You're hot. Come on, keep coming. Tablets. Okay, what are the Ten Commandments a part of? Torah, yeah, 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 but there's uh, something else going on between God and the Israelites. Uh, co- covenant, yes, ding, 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 we got it, A++. plus. Okay, a covenant, a covenant. The memorial is a reminder of the covenant. Trumpet played, memory triggered, God formed a covenant with us as a people. He spoke it to us. Okay, as I say the word covenant or as We just said the word covenant. There's a good chance that there's probably like 500 different ideas of what a covenant is in this room right now. So let's get a shared understanding of what a covenant is. Here it is in the most basic of terms it's a relationship between two parties. It's a relationship. It's a relationship between two individuals, two groups of people, one individual, a whole bunch of people. And the thing about covenants, and this time in history, way back then, they were super popular. They were popular economically. You are a king of a country that produces wonderful grapes. And you are a queen of a country that produces wonderful grain. And then the two of you come together in a covenant relationship, and you say, hey, you know what, we make amazing grapes and wine, but if we don't have grain, we're going to starve to death. So... We need some of your grain. You form a relationship with promises. You promise to give grain. You promise to give grapes. Militarily, uh, you're a king, and you're a king, and you have pretty good armies, but you don't have the big Hittite army or the big Egyptian army. So you come together, and you say, hey, let's have a relationship where we promise that if the Egyptians come after either one of us, we will fight together. Relationship with promises. That's what a covenant is, but if you're listening to me very closely, you're noticing something that should make your theological spider senses tingle. Tingle, 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 you know what I mean? Like, something doesn't sit right. You're like, yeah, the relationship promises, that's good, but you're talking about God and Israelites being equals? This is not a parody covenant. It's not like the Israelites, well, hey, God, you know, we got $20 billion in reserve. So when your economy falls apart, we'll, we'll float you some cash. That's not what this is. This is a different kind of covenant between God and Israel that happened on Mount Sinai. So to help us make sense of this, I've got some slides for us. But let me just quickly say this. This is an ancient form of covenant where it's called the vassal covenant. When you think of the word vassal, you probably think of a servant or a dependent, right? Someone who doesn't have a whole lot to offer. And then you have what is called a suzerian. That's my best French I could possibly do. Suzerian, which sounds like the word sovereign, and sovereign is king. So you have a king and an dependent coming into a relationship with each other. That's not equal partners. But this is exactly the kind of covenant formula that God spoke into existence with the Israelites. And just to show you that this is true, this covenantal relationship is in the book of Exodus. Basically between chapters 19 through 24, I would like to highlight the core pieces of this covenant for you so you can see it for yourself. Would that be okay? Okay, this is like Bible Island place where we're going, so we're going to be Bible people for just a little bit. But DJ, all right, there's five pieces to this kind of vassal covenant, this formula. It's right there in Exodus 19 through 24. Uh, the first piece is the introduction or a preamble. And in that, the big boss, the suzerian, the king, Gives their titles, you know. I'm the king that conquered so and so, and I have a kajillion dollars. God starts the covenant off with saying this: "I am the Lord your God." Done, Yahweh. That's it. That's all you need to know. That's the. I think that's powerful. Okay. The next piece is the history: how the couple met right? Like when you are married and someone always asks you, hey, how'd you two meet? You're like, well, we met online or we met in a wedding or a blind date or we were climbing a mountain and we got trapped. So we said, why not get married? I don't know. But the history is how the two parties are brought together for that particular relationship. And I know and I know and I know it actually begins with Abraham, but this relationship formally happens at Sinai. So how did the Israelites and Yahweh get there? Well, there it is, Exodus 19. You, the God speaking, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. God whooped pharaohs behind, plagues, set the captives free, and how I, God, carried you, Israel, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Beautiful image of how God carried the Israelites to Sinai to form this relationship with them. Stipulations. If anyone who is here today is involved in any sort of premarital counseling, formally or informally, you know how important it is to get that couple to start making the expectations clear, right? Well, my mama put the milk in the fridge this way. Oh, but my mama put the milk in the fridge this way. Expectations. Disaster. You got to get them out. Well, in the covenant formula, the relationship, there are stipulations. And in the broadest, most general way, God lays it out in Exodus nineteen five and 6. He says, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant out of all the nations, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Stipulations or expectations that God has for the Israelites are spelled out even more specifically in the Ten Commandments. The vertical, horizontal relationship. And then this book called Leviticus has 242 instructions on how to live out these stipulations. Next slide. Blessings and curses. I like to say, "Oh yeah" or "Oh no." Like blessings, "Oh yeah." Curses, "Oh no." Oh no. Well, those are spelled out specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one book after Leviticus. uh, Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God, all these blessings will come upon you. And then there's a list of them. Verse 15. However, there's always those "however's" or "but's" in the Bible that are you gotta pay attention to. If you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come upon you, a list of them. So there's a warning. And then lastly, which is one of the most important pieces to this whole idea of covenantal relationship, is the sealing of the deal, getting it done, the ratification. And this is mostly dependent upon the vassal, the servant, the dependent. I mean, Yahweh is the one who's setting the terms. They have to either say, yes, we will do it, or no, we will not. So here in Exodus 24, the end of what this covenant formula is embedded in the Bible. Moses took half the blood of some bulls and he put it in bowls, not bulls, bulls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that's Exodus 19 through 24, and he read it out loud to the people. They responded, the Israelites said this, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey Moses then took the blood and sprinkled on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. <laughs> What's happening here is really important. I mean, it's one thing for the Israelites to say, yes, we will, we will obey, we'll do all this, we'll be in this relationship with you, God, with their words. But this deal is sealed with blood, a blood oath. There's a connectedness here. The blood is sprinkled on the people. The blood is sprinkled on the altar up to God. People are connected to the altar to God saying, we are connected to you, God, in relationship through blood. This is no fooling around. This is a serious relationship. Thank you. And I share this formula with you Uh, First, of course, to help us become better readers of the Bible, right? Because we want to be a community that hears God speak. But second, write this down. But second, and most importantly, this reveals that God is in the business of creating unfair relationships Yahweh is in the business of speaking with his mouth the very words, creating unfair relationships with his people. They're unfair because, one, they're all his terms. He sets the formula. They're unfair because he's the one who does all the heavy lifting. He says, I'm the God who's going to protect you. Remember when those Egyptians tried to, like, come after the Israelites when they were finally set free? What did God do? Swallow them up with water. Anyone else who came after the Israelites, wham, they got knocked down to the ground too. God also promises in this relationship to care for the Israelites. I mean, food is coming down from the sky every single day. God puts up with their whininess God cares for them so much, he tells them he's going to give them a promised land. Now, I've never been a slave, so I don't know how powerful it would have been to hear this Caesarean, this father, this God say, I will give you your own land to prosper. But that must have been huge for the Israelites to hear. And then lastly, it's an unfair relationship because Salvation, as we know it, Christians, is a one-sided action. We can't ever save ourselves. There's not enough good that we can ever do to earn God's favor. And the same is true here. When God saved the Israelites from slavery, that is salvation, rescuing them, bringing them into a relationship with him, it's all on God. Are you starting to see with me that God is in the business of creating unfair relationships? I hope so. And the reason why God does just this is love. It's love. Right there in that book called Deuteronomy in chapter 7, God says, I looked at you Israelites when you were in Egypt, and I saw you with compassion. A small tribe of people And so I did this thing for you because I love you. Love is the motivating factor for God to create unfair relationships. So maybe already in your heads, in your mind's eye, you're starting to see other places in the Bible where God does just this, right? He takes an old fella and his, his wife, Abraham and Sarah, and says, hey, I'm going to make a promise to you where you're going to have lots of kids who are my way of saving the world. Unfair relationship. What about that shepherd boy, David, right? Hey, you're just a shepherd boy, but someday you're going to become a king. God is in the business of this. You're seeing this in your head already. I can see light bulbs clicking already in, above your heads. But then here's the most important question. So what? Or as we say in New Jersey, so what? What's the point? What's the purpose of this relationship between God and the Israelites? What's the point? The answer to that so what question is in something we've already tripped on. Good thing I didn't fall. Uh, it's already there. Uh, Can you go back to the first slide? Thank you again. It's right there. Let me read it to you now. The answer of the purpose of this relationship of the covenant is right there. Out of all the nations, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you, Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The answer to the so what question are those three images right there. Let's walk through them together one at a time. I know we're still in Bible Island, but that's okay. Bible Island's a great place to be, folks. Stay with me. Keep keep listening with me. Here it is. Treasured possession out of all the nations. God is saying this, Israel, I chose you. I chose you. I didn't choose those Egyptians who are good at architecture, who are great at growing crops and have a wonderful military. I didn't choose them. I know who they are. I created them and I gave them the land. I didn't choose those upstart Greeks who are asking all those deep philosophical questions and kind of wrapping their minds around intellectual dilemmas. I didn't choose them. I didn't choose those Hittites who are growing this massive army in Mesopotamia and swallowing everybody up. I didn't choose them. I chose you, this small band of tribes of former slaves, to be my treasured possession. That chosenness cannot be separated, though, from the fact that it's connected to all the nations. Hold that thought. God chose them, but God's choosing them is connected to all the nations. Okay, let's keep moving. The next image is kingdom of priests. God's the king. Kings have kingdoms, right? Well, metaphorically speaking, God says my kingdom is made up of priests. That doesn't mean the Israelites were all walking around in special robes and funny hats saying that they're priests. But they were living into a priestly function, a priestly role. And what is a priest, you ask? Well, here's the way I would have described it my pre-Christian days. I would have said, hey, it's the go-between guy, right? Right? Hey, you owe me 20 bucks? Well, hey, go get that 20 bucks from me. Or, hey, I want to give that guy 20 bucks. Can you go take 20 bucks to that guy? They're mediators. They're the in-between person. And here's what priests mediate or go between. They are the people who turn and are in the presence of God. They hear God speak. They see God do things. And then they share with people who are on the outside of God. They go between the presence of God and share what God reveals with those who are on the outside. Keep holding that connection to all the nations. Don't let that go yet. Next image, holy nation. Holy nation. The word holy means to separate, but it means more than just separation. It means separated for a purpose, separated for service. Holiness is this thing that requires not only this unique devotion to one God, it also includes the way that they're supposed to live, to reveal. That holiness, right? It's one thing for me to say, hey, I'm a holy guy, I'm really good, and then go do terrible things. It's another thing to not say I'm holy, but to live a holy life, and you go, wow, that guy looks different. Looks different. Well, Leviticus is a book with 242 instructions on how to live the holy life, and some of us as Christians in 2017 look at Leviticus, and we, we go, wow, uh, that's some weird stuff, But embedded in that weird stuff is Leviticus 19. And I've highlighted some of the key pieces for holy living in Leviticus 19. I think you might know what they are. The first one is God's command. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this separate separate living for service is a reflection of God himself. So if you live holy Israel, you're going to look like me being holy. It should point others to me. All right here's here's some of those distinctive ways of living holy Leviticus 19 uh, have respect for family and community members to live out economic integrity If you own a business, you should promote your workers and treat them well. Have compassion for the poor. If you have a court system, there should be judicial fairness for all. Sexual integrity. It does matter what you do in your bed. Racial equality and kindness to immigrants. And then the last one that I saw in that passage is honest business practices. If we live that way right now, we would look different in all those ways to the world around us. But the Israelites, if they practice this holy living, these distinctive things, the Ten Commandments, these things in Leviticus 19, people are going to look at them and go, why are you different? Why is it when an immigrant comes into your land, you guys treat them so good? We grab them and throw them in as slaves. What is so different This holy nation metaphor is a way of God saying, Israel, in my relationship with you, I want you to draw people to yourselves with the unique way that you live so they will see me. Let me say this as clearly and as simply as I possibly can. The purpose of the relationship, this unfair one between God and Israel, the whole purpose is to invite outsiders in. The purpose, amen, the purpose of God forming a relationship with Israel is to invite those who don't know Yahweh to know Yahweh. To come and experience an unfair relationship with him. God is a missionary God and his people are a missionary people from the very beginning of the book. Some of you might be looking at me now going, I think there's a little more to this. I'm not so sure I can buy into this yet. I've read the Old Testament. There's a lot more things going on. Well, I have a whole bunch of texts in the Old Testament that help support this claim. But let me just share with you one for right now. If you want more later, let's go up to my office and let's just have some fun. But for right now, just let me share with you one. Uh, Fast forward button from the Sinai Desert, covenantal experience, trumpets being played to this time when Israel has their own land, their own kings, and then all of a sudden these Babylonians, this outside enemy, 900 miles away from Jerusalem, swoops in and destroys Jerusalem because it's a strategic center. They just level the buildings to the ground. Whoever survives, the few, are put in chains and forced to march naked all the way to Babylon, utterly Humiliating. They get there, and they're treated like second-class citizens. They're lonely. They're depressed. Talk about PTSD. They experienced it full tilt. But then God raises up this prophet named Jeremiah, one of my personal favorites, and God speaks. And he speaks through this prophet to speak to the Israelites In Jeremiah 29, there's a famous verse there, but before that famous verse that many of you have probably memorized, God tells the Israelites this. Build homes in Babylon. Grow crops. Have your sons and your daughters marry Babylonians so your families will increase. But that's not all. It gets even more tricky when God says... Be committed to the welfare of the city. Be committed, work for the prosperity and the peace of Babylon. And still, there's one more. God says to the Israelites, pray for the prosperity of that city. Your prosperity is linked to their prosperity. These are Israel's enemies. They are more than outsiders. They are the ones that they loathe more than life. Even though they did all the wrong things by breaking the covenant up to this point, worshiping other gods, weird sexual activities, uh, greediness, all that kind of stuff, they still hated the Babylonians. And God is saying, pray for their prosperity. Kingdom of priests. God's presence. Praying for the outsiders. The Feast of Trumpets is a reminder of not just the unfair relationship that God brought Israel into, but it's also a reminder of this, to invite outsiders in. Israel's goal was to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation could extend to the ends of the earth. Yes. So what happened? We alluded to some of the problems already, right? We alluded to the fact that they worshiped other gods, which is basically connecting to another Suzarian, right? That's not good. God says, me and me alone. First commandment, pretty clear. They did all these other things. They broke the covenant. But what's underneath that? Why? I mean, we as Christians love to talk about the sin, but what's underneath the sin? What spiritually, what emotionally, what kind of triggers, what's going on underneath there? The Israelites forgot. Underneath all that stuff, they forgot. They forgot to blow the trumpets. This is perhaps partly why we don't know much about the Feast of Trumpets, why it falls off the pages of Scripture Is because they forgot about it. It was something that they should have known about, right? They didn't have to write it down. But they forgot. They forgot their purpose of this unique relationship that they had with God. They forgot. And as I say all this to you now, we have the same tendency in us. Yes, the capacity to forget what God has done to bring us in this room into a relationship with himself, We forget too. Here are three reasons why we can forget. First reason is distractions. An easy distraction is right here. Technology. Right? We spend at least five hours a day looking at this little screen. Texting, tweeting, liking things on Facebook. Do some of us still call people? I don't know. I don't do that as much anymore. But... This has our lives on it. We are distracted by technology, and there's probably a whole host of other things that easily pull us away, distract us from remembering what God has done for us. Here's a second reason. This is gonna resonate, I surely promise you. We're busy. We are busy. We go from the grocery store, we go to school, we go to work, we go to soccer practice, we we go, we go. We go. So much so that there's some Scottish researchers a few years ago that studied the busyness of life. And what they came up with is the busy life syndrome. I'm not making this up. You can Google it now if you want on your handheld device. That'll count as one of your five hours. (laughs) But they came up with this thing called the busy life syndrome. How many of you here today feel like you might be suffering from the busy life syndrome? I'm not the only one what happens when the pharmaceutical companies get a hold of this one I mean think about it right commercial did you lose your car keys did you leave your kid at the grocery store (laughs) do you eat most of your meals in the driver's seat of your car If you've answered yes to any of these questions, there's a good chance you should consult your medical professional to see if you are suffering from busy life syndrome and ask them if tranquilodon is right for you. Side effects are blah, 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 blah. And if they do do it and they make a lot of money, well, they got to give some to me so we can use it for ministry, right? (laughs) But busyness is certainly one of the ways we can forget what God has done for us. Here's the third and final one, idolatry. Yes, idolatry. It sounds archaic, but there's a preacher uh, in New York City named Tim Keller that's been really helpful probably for many of us in this room in understanding the problem of idols today. And his definition of an idol is anything that you think of more than you think of God. Anything that you think about more than you think about God. So let's add a little bit to Keller's definition. We think about those idols more because they serve us. Remember, God brings us into a relationship with himself for the purpose of inviting outsiders. We are in a relationship to serve him, not for our own benefits of salvation. He doesn't save us so we can say, ooh, we're saved. He saves us so we can invite others into it. But idols are different. We worship them because they feed our own things. Power is an example of an idol. Money, right? And I'm not talking about money when you don't have enough money to pay your bills and you're worried. That's a different thing. I'm talking about when you have money and all you're thinking about is, you know, I want another car that I don't need or another house that I don't need or another boat that I don't need or this or that or the latest gadget that I don't need. And your mind is consumed with the purchasing power of money. There's a movie that I do not recommend from the pulpit I cannot recommend this from the pulpit, but it's a movie that is the best critique on the idols of consumerism, I think, in our lifetime. And it's a movie called Fight Club. And there's a fellow named Brad Pitt in that movie, and he has this famous quote. He says this, the things you own end up owning you. The idols we think about, focus on, serve, end up Owning us, if it's power or if it's sex, if it's money, that idol will take control of our lives. We will no longer be prioritized with God, we'll prioritize with the idol. I'm sure there are more reasons why we do forget, but listen Israel forgot. We forget. Good news. Good news, young fellow. Good news is God does not. God does not forget his promises. God does not forget his relationship. That he speaks into existence. That same group of exiled Israelites in Babylon are lonely and worried. Probably a big part of their loneliness is the fact is Are we ever going to hear God speak again? Remember, that's good news. Well, God did speak to them again through Jeremiah. And this is what he said. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel And with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Listen to this, friends. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more, declares the Lord. Fast forward again historically. Let's hit that VCR button. I dated myself, didn't I? Hit the button. 500 some years from Jeremiah's time, Babylonian exile. Let's fast forward. To a time in Jerusalem, there's 13 fellows hanging out in a room together. They're eating a meal. These guys are as tight as friends can be. And as they're eating the meal, the leader of this group, a fellow they often refer to with the title rabbi or by his name, Jesus, takes some bread and a cup of wine. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Through Jeremiah, God promised that the day is coming when there'll be a new kind of relationship with himself. He also promised there'll be a new kind of forgiveness of sins. And now you have Jesus, God himself speaking to those 12 people Speaking to other ancient Israelites who knew this Jeremiah passage, who were yearning for the day when God himself would bring about that new kind of relationship, when he would forgive them of their sins in a way in which they didn't have to sacrifice animals or hope that it worked, but a way that God himself will sacrifice himself to forgive them of their sins, to bring them into this relationship. Friends, Jesus Christ is God speaking. Jesus Christ is speaking because he is God. And what he's saying is, I am going to bring you into this new relationship. Through through the cross where I'm about to die, my blood will be shed to ratify this covenant with you. Your sins will be no more. Through my resurrection, you will be brought into a new relationship with me because the resurrection, I have defeated the biggest enemy, death. Death. Death itself. So you will be filled with my Holy Spirit, God, to be in a relationship where everything I have to say to you is in your head and in your heart. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of the new covenant. I am the one who's bringing it about. Friends, Jesus Christ is saying, the father is still the Caesarean and I have become the vassal. I am the one who completes the covenant now on. Now your trust is in me. In me. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul, a good friend who we learn so much from in the Bible, Paul says at least 70 times, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in him and in him alone, are we brought into an unfair relationship with God for the sole purpose, the sole purpose to invite outsiders to come and see Jesus. Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 And lastly, this is the really cool thing about God. This is so cool about God. Lastly, it's the same reason as the first time. He does it because he loves. John 15, 13. No greater love than this, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. As we end our time together, I will share with you just a quick story, a story of when I first became a Christian and realized quickly that God was calling me into some kind of ministry, and I was a young adult. I wasn't really raised to read the Bible and pray like maybe some of you have. Um, I was a mess, and immediately I was a part of a small church, and they threw me in high school ministry, and I told heresy to these poor kids. Thankfully, they had grace and patience. So I actually learned more about the Bible from the high school kids than they learned from me because I didn't know a lot of stuff. So the guy that was mentoring me was like, hey, you need to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico and get some training on how to be a pastor, to learn about the Bible and theology and that sort of thing. So I said, of course. And I was at that time a younger, stronger, invincible. I believe in Jesus. I'm like that new vampire. I just got bit and I can't be stopped. Well, as I'm about to go to Albuquerque, I get a phone call saying, hey, your great aunt died. I don't know who this person is. a great aunt. I don't know if you know your great aunt. I didn't. And the funeral is tomorrow. I'm packing my stuff. I'm gonna go learn stuff about Jesus. I'm invincible and I am strong. No time for that. I got coerced. I ended up going to this funeral. I sat begrudgingly in the back of it, twiddling my thumbs. Oh, this is terrible. And then all of a sudden, this elderly fellow... Gets up and he preaches this sermon or eulogy, whatever you want to call it, and he says the gospel in the most beautiful of all ways that doesn't offend my non-Christian family, but actually makes clear the unique way that Jesus, we have a relationship with God. I sat there going, Wow, that was so cool. I should have been more sacred or sanctimo, whatever the word is when you're At a funeral. Anyways, after the funeral, I go up to this fellow and I say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to Albuquerque. I'm going to become a pastor or something. I don't know what, but I know I'm going to go and learn about the Bible. And I'm excited and I'm strong and I'm energetic and I'm going to give everything I've got for Jesus. I don't care the cost. And this fellow looks at me and he says, That's great. And thank you for the feedback on the sermon. But there's something else I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, Son, I've been serving the Lord formally for almost five decades five decades. I was a chaplain in World War II. I saw horrible things. And in the midst of those horrible things, I saw God do miracles. In pastoral ministry, which I did for decades, I saw God move mountains. I saw the fire swirling around the mountain. But there was 11 years as a pastor when I didn't hear God speak. I didn't know what to do. I read the Bible every day. I prayed every day. I prayed the same prayer. God, let me hear you speak. Give me ears to hear because I'm hearing nothing. I thought about leaving, being a pastor, but I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm an old guy who can't do anything else but preach. It was the most lonely and disparaging time of my entire life. But the one thing I continued to do day in and day out in that loneliness was read the scriptures. It was like reading a boring newspaper, but I did it anyways. And then one day, son, I bounced into Psalm 77. And there's two verses in Psalm 77, 11 and 12, that I want you to never forget. You do not forget these verses, son. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Son, don't you ever forget what God has done for you individually, but more importantly, what God has done on the cross where Jesus died. If you do, you've got nothing. What I now know that fellow was saying to me is he was saying, young man, blow the trumpet. The trumpet might come to you in the form of loneliness and despair, where you have nowhere else to turn. But that might be the trigger that reminds you of what God has done for you. So you can hear him speak. And maybe for some of you, that might be exactly where you're at. Maybe there's some of us here today who still aren't sure we can trust in Jesus and we feel lonely and in despair. But the good news is the trumpet is sounding and the reminder is coming that he is bringing you into a relationship. Perhaps there's a few of us who've been away doing things we shouldn't have done. Maybe we're feeling anxious about it, like we gotta do a bunch to save ourselves. Good news, the trumpet is sounding, reminding you that Jesus has paid it all. And there's some of us like that elderly fellow just like me, who feel that we've lost that sense of awe and wonder, but wham, the trumpet is sounding. It's time for us to hear God speak, to remember what he's done for us long ago. Would you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, we thank you for this gathered time together where we hear you speak. We actually believe, Lord, that you speak through the Bible. And the reason why you do this isn't so that way we can learn a bunch of religious rules. You do this because you love us. And Lord, our prayer together is that we will hear you better, that we'll see the work that you're doing in this world and we'll join in. And Lord, we pray that somehow, some way, that we will create our own Feast of Trumpets to remind ourselves of the great work that you've done to bring us into a relationship where now all we want to do is to invite and inspire others to come and see you. We pray these things in your name, O oh Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it only makes sense that on a sermon like this, we would take communion afterwards. So instead of saying more words from my own mouth, I would just like to read to you Jesus' words. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command, my stipulation is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant A new friend reminded me of this passage that really connects well with what we've read, what we've heard God say. Here it is But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All God's people said, amen. Have a great week.